That's our prayer this morning, is that Jesus would come, and that as he comes, that we're ready as his church, as his bride. And this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter 3, and dealing with that, dealing with the coming of Christ. You know, one of the things that has been happening over the last several weeks, obviously, with the shelter in place and the quarantine for coronavirus has been the fact that a lot of people have questioned if this is the end times. In fact, um, I've received emails about that or, and even phone calls about whether or not I believe that this is signs of the, the end times. Um, there was recently an article that was actually written by Washington Post and by MSN. They were posted, and it, it actually was entitled this. It said, This is not the world. This is the title. This is not the world according to Christians who study the end of the world. It's a a funny title, right? And we wonder why a news organization like the Washington Post or MSN would be running or even reporting an article like that. And the truth is, think about that just for one moment. You see, why would a secular news organization print an article about the end of the world. It's because people are desiring answers. They don't want their lives disrupted, and they want some security, and they desire some certainty. And isn't it interesting that people are speaking of the end times and the the coming of, of, of the end of the world, and what they're really referencing is the coming of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to dive back into our, our series in Second Peter, into the, the, the last chapter, chapter 3. And the truth is, is that Peter is addressing the need for certainty around the return of Christ and His coming judgment of the world. But being certain of Christ's return is not about us remaining comfortable in the world, but it is about carrying out His purpose. And so this morning, as we begin to look at this last part of Second Peter, let's go ahead and pray before we jump in together. Let's do that. Lord God, thank you that we can come before you. Thank you that we can worship you together, knowing that you are a God who is faithful to his promises. Father, your desire is as your church that we would be ready for your coming. And Father, I pray that we would not grow complacent in your coming, but Father, that it would excite us and motivate us to live for your purpose. Father, there are a lot of fears on hearts this morning, wondering if this is the end of times, if this is the, the, the disease that's spoken of in Scripture, and Truthfully, Lord, we don't, we don't fully know that. We don't know. But what we do know, God, is that you are the one who gives us security. You're the one who grants us certainty. And that, Father, that your desire for us is to, to live for you even more fervently now. Lord God, I pray that within our own hearts this morning 
that your word would penetrate deep within. Lord, if we've never repented and believed on you, I pray that we would consider that this morning. Lord, we may not even know what that fully means, and I pray that that you would open our eyes to that truth. For others, Lord, we, we may have grown complacent in our own walk with you, and Father, I pray that you would stir us out of that complacency and still others that you would renew our passion for your gospel knowing that because of your resurrection that we have life in you but the promise hasn't ended there that you are coming back and there will be a day Lord when you return and you restore us those who have repented and believed on you to life and who who will be able to spend eternity with you and Yet we also pray, God, for those who will experience your judgment, having turned and walked away from you and rebelled against your word, against Jesus. So, Father, may you speak to us this morning, and may we be encouraged and challenged. Areas where we need to be convicted or rebuked, we would be. Settle our hearts before you this morning, and Lord, take those distractions from us. God, speak through me. Bring your word and power. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and read 2 Peter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 10. And this is what it says. It says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, Peter actually says here, he says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. These are followers of Christ that he's writing to. And so let's pick that back up in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. the heart of this specific passage is the truth that certainty about Christ's return and the day of judgment 
is a call to live fervently for Him. Certainty about Christ's return and the day of judgment is a call to live fervently for Him. Certainty is a call. When we understand and we have the certainty of Christ's return and that He will return and that He will return for His people and He will judge the world, there's a call that He has placed upon us. In verse 1 through 2, it says this. Peter says, This is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, Peter begins this portion of the letter with a reminder. He's not questioning their sincerity. That's not what he's questioning here. If you recall, he opens up in chapter 1 of Peter and he's actually calling them, stirring them up to remind them of the election that they've experienced to basically affirm the calling that God has given, to walk in the calling that God's given. And then in chapter 2, he lays out both the, the characteristics of a false teacher and then the character of a false teacher. And so what we see is this picture of affirming the call in our life, standing firm amidst false doctrine and false teaching. And now what we're seeing is that Peter is once again stirring the followers of Christ by way of reminder. And that stirring really is an attempt to bring them out of complacency, to prevent them from going into complacency. He's saying here, in essence, he's saying, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. As followers of Christ, we need reminders. We need to be reminded often. Being in youth ministry for almost 15 years, I would hear students say, why do I need to hear this story again? I've heard them all before. And my sarcastic response, which I would often have to hold back, although it didn't always work really well, was, well, if you know them all, then live by them. Right? The, the truth is, is that it's not how many times we've heard the story. It's about, are we walking them out? Are we experiencing and living out the Scripture, God's Word, in our lives? You see, we need reminders, and that's what Peter's saying here, is he wants to remind them that they need, they need to go to God's Word. They need to remember the predictions of the, the holy prophets. And they need to remember the commandment of Jesus. See, as followers of Christ, we need to be regularly reminded of God's Word, the predictions about Christ's return, and His coming judgment, as well as the commandment of Christ. See, it's easy to, to stand firm on our salvation. But at times, we can get lost when, we, when we're kind of sifting through what God really desires for us, which is to always have an eye towards that, the fact that this life is temporal. It's temporary. 
and the life with Him is eternal. He wants us to have a mind towards towards the command that Christ given. The command that, in essence, says that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. The, the command that calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The commission that calls us to go to all nations proclaiming His truth. You see, for each of us, we need to keep that in mind. Because if we don't keep the fact in mind that Jesus will return and that there is a day of judgment, and if we don't keep in mind the commandments of Jesus, the instruction of Jesus, we will grow complacent. We'll grow complacent in our salvation. We'll grow complacent in our relationship with Jesus. And we almost take on an attitude of, hey, I'm good. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. He says, because God's word is true, we must pay attention to it and take its message seriously. New converts must be taught the word and established in the doctrines of the faith, for new Christians are the apostate teacher's primary target. But older Christians must also be reminded of the importance of the Bible and Bible doctrine, and in particular, the doctrines that relate to the return of Christ. Prophetic teaching must not lull us to sleep. Rather, it must awaken us to live godly lives and to seek to win the lost. So why does Peter then point them directly to the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Well, verses 3 through 4, we're told this. It says, Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, the Cambridge English Dictionary defines a scoffer this way. A scoffer, it's defined is someone who laughs and speaks about a person or idea in a way that shows that they think a person or idea is stupid or silly. A scoffer was simply somebody who mocked. And in this case, they were mocking the return of Christ. They were mocking the return of Christ. Think about that today. Think about those that you come in contact with. Maybe some of you are wrestling with this. That there will be a day that Christ returns. There will be a day that God judges the world. And in that judgment, He will separate the righteous in Christ from those that have rebelled against Him. And those that have rebelled against Him, as we'll see in this passage, experience eternal destruction. That's what it says. Now, we live in a day and age which at times can be hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the hope that we have in Jesus, that Jesus is the only way to experience salvation. He's the only way to have a relationship with God. He's the only way to have eternal security. But mockers, 
mockers still come in. And, and the reason they come in is because of their own sinful desires. You ever have a friend I can think that in, in your life that that for whatever reason, when they're uncomfortable with the situation, they just kind of turn and make fun of you? I remember growing up having a buddy that it seemed like whenever he was uncomfortable, the joke turned on me. Well, that uncomfortableness, that ability to kind of push away what was uncomfortable and place it on somebody else is kind of what the mockers are doing here. It says that they mock. Why? Because of their own sinful desires. Their desire to, to still continue in sin. And so when they're confronted with the truth that Jesus is going to return and that there is going to be a judgment, rather than acknowledging the sin in their life and repenting and believing on Christ for thou salvation, as a result of their own sin, they turn away from Christ and they mock. See, as believers, if we're unsure about Christ's return and, and the reason for His seemingly delayedness, our faith can be shaken when confronted with those who mock our beliefs. It's easy if we're not certain of why Christ has taken so long in our eyes to return. If why the Scripture says that He will return soon in a little while. And it can cause us to doubt our faith and even prevent us from proclaiming our faith. So how can we be certain then of Christ's return and His coming judgment? How can we answer the scoffer's claim that simply says, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, verse 5 through 7 gives us an answer. And there are two ways that we can have certainty and know the certainty of Christ's return. And coming judgment. In verses 5 through 7, it says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Notice what Peter reminds them of. He reminds them really of, of three things. The first thing that he says in verse 5 is that they deliberately overlook this fact. This is a willful choice. It isn't just ignorance. And this is what he's saying. He's saying what I don't want you to do is make this same choice. Willfully ignore the coming of Christ. I want you to know it and I want you to have confidence. They overlook it. Those mockers, they overlook it deliberately. You don't. Don't do it. Don't deliberately overlook this. It says first that the heavens existed long ago. 
You see, the error that the mockers were making was assuming or trying to say that the, the world hadn't changed, that there had been no change, that since the beginning, since all things were initially created, they've continued as the same. God has not intervened. There's been no intervention of God. And yet, we're told that the heavens existed long ago, long before the creation of the earth. And then we're told, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That God speaks into existence his creation. God interrupts time and space and creates. That's the power of his word. And so what we see first, the first place that we can have certainty is the authority of God's word. The authority of God's word. It's tried, it's true. It's proven to be true. Then notice what it says. It says that and by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So God had full control over all nature. Nature doesn't have control over God, but God has control over nature. It wasn't nature interfering with man. Rather, it was God interrupting. Interrupting man. Interrupting man's desires. God was interrupting and He was speaking to create. In Genesis 1.6 it says, And God said, Let there be an expanse from the midst of the water and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 9 continues, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God speaks His creation into existence. From nothing amidst the expanse, He creates. And then from His creation, guess what He does? We're told in Genesis 7, that in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. Verse 21 of chapter 7 of Genesis goes on and says, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. So God takes this water of which the earth was formed out of, and he uses that same means, that same water, to bring his judgment upon the people's disobedience. So the lie that's actually being stated is it's always been the same, but it hasn't been. God already intervened. He's already shown that he will judge. He will deal with sin. And he will deal with man's sinfulness. See, his point was that it was through the authority of God's word that we have life. And it's through the authority of God's word that people also experience death. They experience both eternity and eternal life with Christ. 
and they experience eternal separation because of their rebellion, their refusal to repent and believe on Jesus. God has already shown himself faithful and his word shows it over and over again. The question is, do we believe what his word says? Do we really believe that God's word is the authority in our life? Have we given God's word the rightful place in our life to, to, to speak of the things that we don't like? It's easy to, to love a gracious Savior who came and died for me and carried my sin and put that sin on the cross. But it's entirely different to submit our lives to Him. See, Christ demonstrated love through the sacrifice of His life. And we love Jesus by surrendering our life for His. So there's certainty in the authority of the Word of God. Verse 7 says, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Here's what he's saying. Just as God created through his word, just as God brought judgment through his word during Noah's times, God will once again bring judgment through fire when he comes back. And we can take it to the bank. His word is trustworthy. And it has authority. His word has authority over all things. And it's because we can trust in his authoritative word that we can have certainty that what he says about his return and the coming judgment is true. Peter's argument, it says here, as one commentator puts it, is obvious. The same God who created the world by His Word can also intervene in His world to do whatever He wishes to do. It is His Word that made it and that holds it together. And His Word is all-powerful. Peter points the followers of Christ back to the Word because when we know God's word and we remember the predictions and we remember Christ's commandment, we remember that God's word is authoritative, that there is authority in his word and that it can be trusted. So the first aspect or the first way in which we can have certainty is through the authority of God's word. The second means of our certainty of God's return or Christ's return and, and impending judgment is the loving mercy of God. The loving mercy of God. See, in verse 8 and 9, we have a contrast. He said that the mockers, he said they intentionally or they, they, they intentionally or let me find the, the word there, but deliberately overlook this truth. Now he says to the believers, this one, he says, but do not overlook this one fact. Don't overlook it. So now we have a second instruction. The first is God showing us what 
the mockers are doing, how they're being deceived by deliberately overlooking the authority of God's word. And now he turns to the believer and he says simply, do not overlook this one fact. And he says, beloved, that which the, with that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He goes on, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the first part of our certainty deals with the authority of God's word. The second deals with his, his loving mercy. The loving mercy of God. Now we need to see two things about God's loving mercy here. The first is his timing. God's timing is not the same as your timing. He says that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What seems long to us does not seem long to God. You see, we can often fashion God into our own image and expect that God is going to react and respond the way that we desire. Think about that. Ever prayed before, like, God, I don't get why you're doing this. Why don't you just come and do this now? Because I need it now. That old adage that, that God, God is always present. And God will always meet our need, but it often is not in our timing. In fact, there are times where we, we've heard that saying that God is seldom early, but he's never late. And that's a saying that actually forces us to depend upon him. In fact, he knows what is best for us. I remember years ago in ministry talking to somebody, and they were sharing, you know, it's really hard for me to live in my life where I've had a real reduction in income. And, and it's hard to actually receive gifts from others because I really prefer to be the giver. And I remember I kind of laughed with them and I said, I think everybody prefers to be the giver because that's our flesh. Our flesh says, gosh, I, I, I would love to be able to not have to be so dependent upon God all the time. And yet, in God's mercy and God's grace, He forces us to be dependent upon Him. And so we go through seasons where we're, we're able to be the giver and we go through seasons where the, we're the one receiving the giving. And isn't that the way that God is working with us? In our faith, we, we come to Him and we are immediately receivers. And then as He grows us, we become givers. We proclaim that truth. And then God takes us through seasons where he gives us moments of respite. And others pour into our life and God pours into our life and then we're sent back out. That's the essence of the gospel and we need that. Because if we don't have that, we become self-sufficient. And so God's timing is not the same as our timing. Psalm 90, verses 3 through 4 says, You return to man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight 
are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Even the Old Testament prophets, even those who were carrying it out, understood that God's timing was not their timing. And the reason that God's timing is not our timing is because He is a God of mercy. The second aspect of His mercy is His patience. Notice in verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. I know in my own life, there have been times of like, Lord, why don't you just come yet? We think about dying, right? And those times in our life where death comes up, we want, either want to often die in our sleep or Jesus come back. It's never the, hey, I want to die a brutal death. And so, we can wonder sometimes, like, God, why are you not coming like, this is painful. This stinks. God, why are you not, why are you not coming and seeing the state of our world and responding and dealing with the sinfulness of our world? And then we're reminded here in this passage the reason why. That God is not slow to fulfill His promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Boy, it changes our view, doesn't it? There are so many times we think about God's return in light of our own selves. What God is saying is, listen, I'm not done yet. There are more to come to me. Ezekiel 33:11 says, "Say to them, this is God, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel?" Listen, Jesus is not saying here or that Peter's not saying this about Jesus. That his salvation is going to be applied to all. This is not a universalism. What it is saying is that, that God here, he says that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is not a universalism. It is very clear that salvation is a result of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. And that our salvation is only a result of repentance and belief. Now speaking to Jesus' patience, in John 10, 16 it says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There are still more sheep to come. And it's easy to hasten for the day when God will return when we look at it from our lens, when we see it from our world, from our perspective. And this is what Peter's driving at here. He's trying to get us to move off of simply our perspective, but to the certainty of Christ's returning in judgment. 
John Calvin put it this way. He says, So wonderful is his love towards mankind that he would have them all be saved, and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on loss. But the order is to be noticed that God is ready to receive all to repentance so that none may perish. For in these words, the way and manner of obtaining salvation is pointed out. Every one of us, therefore, who is desirous of salvation must learn to enter by this way through repentance and belief. You see, God's loving mercy is the reason that he seemingly delays. It's not because he's become slothful. It's not because he's forgotten. It's not because he's building a bigger mansion and just getting the faucets right. It's because God's home is marked by the people and there are still more of his chosen that are coming to him. So, why in the world then are we reminded of this truth? One, yes, for the certainty. But that certainty within us that Jesus is coming again and his coming judgment is not to be one that's just sat on it's to be one that is acted on. And his point here is this. He says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Whoa. He gives us this, this picture of certainty through the authority of the Word of God. Through the fact that we can have certainty because of God's loving mercy that He's still actively working and people are still coming to Him. And that is why He has not come because He's not done. But then He says that He will come like a thief. See, we are called to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and to remember the commandment of Jesus through the apostles. Why? Because there is an urgency for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This idea that he comes like a thief is the fact that he comes in a way that is abrupt, quick, without anyone knowing. I dare say I think that we've had too many Christians over the past several years that have tried to figure out the timing of Jesus' return. We need to embrace this passage and understand we aren't going to know. We need to be aware so that when we see it, we'll know. As 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians lays out. But then we also need to realize that God is calling us to act. You see, in this certainty, God calls us to urgently pursue His will. Urgently pursue His will. And we're going to see next week what that means in terms of living our lives in a, in a manner worthy of that calling. But it also means that we are to live out the great commission in front of people, in front of the world that God has placed us, that the gospel is to have a level of urgency to it. Our lives are to have a level of urgency to it. 
And we are to urgently pursue His will, both in the proclamation of His truth, the sharing of His truth, and the living out His truth in our own personal lives. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39 says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and sent them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wow. Just as the flood came upon the earth in Noah's time, so too will God's judgment come in fire upon the earth in his time. And it will be in that judgment that the wheat will be separated from the chaff, that the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous. And it says here that the works that are done on the earth will be exposed, that you will be exposed in Christ. Christ's righteousness will be seen. Apart from Christ, the works will be separated from God, and you will be separated from God. As followers of Christ, our call is to live urgently in pursuit of God's will. The certainty that we have about Christ's second coming should not breed complacency. It should not be an attitude of, well, my family's okay. It should produce in us a desire to go and share and proclaim. So why? That our hearts might be aligned with Jesus when we're saying that our wish is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This passage is a wonderful one. When we think of the earth coming and being judged in fire. Think about this for one moment. It's obviously a contrast to the water which brought judgment upon Noah, but God's giving us kind of a softball here. He's given us a pitch down the middle to hit. And what do I mean by that? Well, think about this in, in a practical way. Some of you may have seen recently on video, maybe on Facebook or on YouTube, this video of, of a about a four-year-old boy who's playing baseball with his dad during the quarantine right now. They're out at a baseball field, and he's throwing them pitches. And this four-year-old boy, they were on the news as well, on the news channels. You can see him on there too. This four-year-old boy, his dad throws him this pitch, and this kid hits this ball over the fence. It's probably 150 or 200 feet. And the dad just starts jumping up and down, and he's pumping his fist. He's like, yeah, yeah. And this kid just runs around the bases and circles the bases and comes all the way around for his first home run as a four-year-old hitting a ball that far. But his dad, as he's throwing, is throwing these pitches right down the middle. Well, let me give you an example. God's given us a pitch down the middle, too, in the culture that we live in. If we're desiring to actually share our faith, we need to look for bridges. We need to look for ways to be able to communicate the gospel. And I want to encourage you, if, if nothing else this morning, that as we have sin, we, have, we have certainty around the coming of Christ that we are then motivated, that we are then moved to pray for opportunity and to seek opportunity to share the gospel. God says here that the earth will get so hot 
because of fire that he will bring upon his judgment. This is not intended to be a political statement. In fact, I wouldn't make any judgments from that at all. But as Christians, we can often be known for politics more than we can the Word of God. The issue today, which is a hot topic, is the issue of global warming. We need to be using that as a bridge, not as a debate. Whatever side you're on, stop debating it and use it as a bridge. See, God says that the earth is going to get hotter. Now, I don't know if that means global warming, but what I can say is that God says that there will be a day that will be so hot that he will refine, he will bring judgment upon his people or upon the people of the earth, and he will separate his people from those that have rebelled against him. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to share with somebody as you got into a discussion about how the world's getting hot to go, oh, you know what? Isn't that interesting? The Bible talks about the world going to get hot too. That there will be a judgment that's coming. Have you ever thought about that? That there will be such a day where fire will consume the earth and separate the righteous from the unrighteous? Have you ever thought about that? See, see God's given us a pitch right down the middle. But the question is, are we focused Are we focused on ourselves? Are we focused on growing in complacency? Or are we looking for opportunity to express the gospel clearly to a people who are seeking answers? May our prayer this morning be one in which the certainty of the coming of Christ leads us to pursue his will actively and live fervently for him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that we can come before you and that we can see your word and the certainty of your coming return. Father, may we not get lost in the details of your return, but may we in confidence know that you are returning and then move to live fervently for you. May we see that there is an urgency to the gospel message because you might come at any time and we don't know when that is. And there will be a day when people can no longer repent and believe on you and that day will come when you return and you separate the wheat from the chaff, the righteous from the unrighteous. Lord, it is only through Jesus that we have righteousness because of the work that he's done on the cross, and we praise you for that. And may we be motivated to be a people who proclaim your gospel because of your coming return and the fact that you fulfill your promises in your loving mercy. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.